Trade, a tale of Christmas spiritual pollution by Sternwriter. Part one, the staircase. Not having ever met anyone who didn't enjoy Christmas, Callum was unsure how to respond to Robert's rant. Hogmanay apart, Christmas was his favorite time of year. Whinging about its commercialization, however reasonable, still felt wrong. Treacherous, somehow. Then again, since he'd arrived in China, Callum had found himself reconsidering many things. In September, he'd wave goodbye to Mum, Dad and Morag at Glasgow Airport. Three months on, that felt like a former life. Callum joined Robert at the top of the echoing concrete staircase of their new home, the Foreign Students' Dormitory at Beijing's Foreign Languages University. As they descended, they went through the routine of pulling on gloves, adjusting hats and scarves. Callum watched Robert's breath turn to steam as his new friend continued his now familiar diatribe against the commercialization of Christmas. How Callum's life had changed in the three months since the front door of his family home in Kirkcaldy had clicked shut behind him. It had taken more than a week before he dumped his dusty backpack on the dustier mattress of his Spartan student accommodation. Callum's odyssey, by plane, train, public bus and the back of a peasant's donkey cart, had packed in more eye-opening experiences than his previous 19 years. Callum's arrival at the dorm, clutching his backpack to his chest as the donkey clip-clopped its way from the campus main gate, farting rhythmically on every clop, had already been honed into a classic anecdote. But everyone had their own versions. In 1984, getting into China was far from straightforward, even with that impressive student visa that took up two entire pages of Callum's passport and a year's worth of elementary Chinese. The year before, Callum's move from Kirkcaldy, his home since birth, to Edinburgh University had felt like a big step. But it barely registered compared to the great leap forward he'd taken over the past three months. Take Robert. Robert was the first Londoner Callum had ever met, let alone considered a friend. They'd got on well enough during first year, but had barely socialised beyond the classroom. Now that they were among a few dozen British students amid a billion Chinese, they'd found they had an awful lot in common. All that prickly English-Scottish banter, all the niggly national and class resentments he'd grown up with, suddenly didn't seem so important. It was hard to sustain any anti-English resentment when, as if emerging from a space pod on a distant planet, you find yourself representing the rest of the world to the Middle Kingdom. Culloden, Bannockburn, the Highland Clearances, all those bitter betrayals evaporate when you parachute onto an alien planet. But as their teachers, their party badges pinned to their lapels, constantly reminded Callum and Robert they were the aliens. China might have been slowly emerging from a decade of hermetically sealed self-harm, but it was still the world's oldest civilization, and they didn't half let you know it. As Robert liked to observe, the Chinese were kind of schizophrenic about their country's global status, oscillating, that was the word he'd used the first time Callum had heard it, oscillating between superiority and inferiority complexes. One minute, their teachers would be banging on about their 5,000 years of history, Robert would say, the next apologising for everything being so rubbish. 
Lawho was the word they always used. It was a new word not just for Callum, but for all his classmates. The dictionary said it meant backward. Another word they'd not learned on their beginner's course in Edinburgh was lawai. They'd learned the dictionary translation for foreigner, wai guoran, painfully copying out the characters dozens of times, the only way to retain any of this mysterious language, wai guoran, outside country person, wai guoran. But they hardly ever heard the word in real life. Every non-Asian-looking student in their foreign student's dorm was a lawai, translated as something like a good old foreigner. As Callum and Robert's Chinese had improved, they'd started to notice not everyone used this friendly epithet. Cheeky kids, bitter-looking old folk, even some particularly grim-faced Chinese students would use terms like dabizi, big noses, or yangguizi, foreign devils. Either way, whether they were from Britain or Bhutan, they were all lumped into the world of being not Chinese. Others. Miscellaneous. Outside country people. This created a weird internationalist solidarity. Whatever friction that might have arisen from Callum and Robert's different upbringings in small-town Scotland and public school London was overwhelmed by the day-to-day experience of being a foreigner in China in 1984. Or, as Robert liked to call it, and Callum now found himself saying too, even adopting the same Cockney accent, Only the people's bloody republic are bleeding China! Callum and Robert had now descended the last step and reached the ground floor entrance hall of the foreign students' dorm. They dropped the flaps of their fake fur caps. The echoes of their footsteps on the bare concrete corridor became muffled. When Robert shouldered open the double doors leading to the entrance hall, they barely heard them creak. As the doors opened and the guard came into view, tinny pop music leaked from the transistor radio on his wooden desk. Three months ago, they'd been astonished to hear Chinese state radio, well, there was no other radio, playing Eurodisco on rotation. Now, they barely registered it. The guard, there to register Chinese people entering, not foreigners exiting, glanced up, impassive. Foreigners adjusting their winter clothing no longer held any fascination for him, unlike his billion compatriots, less accustomed to such wonders. Satisfied they'd minimised the area of their skin exposed to the elements, Callum and Robert pushed through the insulation suspended from the dormitory entrance. The cotton-padded curtains closed behind them. The Euro disco cut out and was replaced by the low hum of distant traffic and the near hum of campus activity. There were leafless trees, but no birds, unless you counted the repeated patterns of the ankle-high plastic molded swans. They had recently been installed as edging to the campus's flower beds and grassy areas. The grass was all brown. The swans appeared to be mating over and over again. Callum expected Robert to remark on this, as he had ever since the mating swan edging had first appeared a month before. But his companion had other things on his mind. Isn't this brilliant? Robert exclaimed once they'd recovered from the sub-zero blast. Gingerly, they stepped onto the path to the main gate. It was gritted, but the hazy winter sun had yet to melt away all the icy patches. Callum and Robert's tentative steps betrayed their caution at pratfalling in front of the whole campus, 
but anyone overhearing their conversation would have detected their sense of purpose. Callum and Robert were on a mission to save Christmas. Just look at this, Robert gestured around them. December the 25th, just another winter's day like any other. Bloody brilliant. Part two, the campus. Callum responded to Robert's gleeful declaration that Christmas Day was just a day like any other. His scarf muffled his reply and made it unintelligible, but Robert didn't seem bothered. The north wind blew harder. Callum and Robert buried their noses deeper into their scarves, dug their hands deeper into the pockets of their green padded greatcoats. These were basically stiff, upright sleeping bags, army issue, made from the same cotton wadding used for the doorway curtains. You wouldn't want to wear one to play badminton, but these great coats were just what Callum and Robert needed for their mission to save Christmas. Peering through the slot between the peak of his furry hat and the top of his scarf, Callum took in what was by now a familiar scene. Robert was right. The campus was indeed just as it had been on any of the preceding December days. Washed out, dreary, dusty. A muted bustle of dull green and blue padded cotton jackets. Students in bunches hunched against the cold. But still, thought Callum, he didn't quite get his new friend's delight at the absence of tinsel, Santas and fairy lights. Callum's parents, both teachers, had raised him to be politically aware and were no fans of rampant capitalism, but they never particularly associated Christmas with mammon. Christmas was just... nice. As they made their way towards the main gate of the campus, Callum said as much. This time, he risked raising his lips above his scarf to make sure Robert heard. But you didn't have to take the bus to school up and down Regent Street every day retorted his friend as they passed the sports field. When they'd first arrived, Callum and Robert used to stop and stare at the tracksuited martial artists wielding their tin spears, pikes and sword in a shiny blur. Now they barely noticed them. Every day I'd sit on the top deck just below the Christmas lights that they'd put up in October. Robert's outrage was building nicely. The bus would barely move, crawling through gawping masses of shoppers all clutching bags of tat. Callum had heard this rant a few times by now, but still found it entertaining. He'd started to notice how it got better with every rendition. A turn of phrase here, a gesture there. Robert might be a bit full on, but he was funny, smart and observant. It was ages since Callum had thought of him as a public school twat. Robert was now onto Callum's favourite bit about Santa Fanalia, his name for all the trappings and tinsel of Christmas back home. As Robert hit his rhetorical stride, their own paces became less tentative. Now in lockstep, Callum and Robert had hit the broad path leading to the campus main gate. Heavy student footfall had eliminated any treacherous icy patches. They could now move with confidence. Any of the passing Chinese students could have detected a sense of purpose in Callum and Robert's body language, though they might not have guessed the nature of their purpose. December the 25th was, after all, just another winter's day to them. Robert had quickly dubbed their expedition the mission to save Christmas. His Scrooge-like contempt for the celebration's commercial obligations or religious ritual turned out not to extend to its festive spirit. 
Robert showed every sign of relishing as much as anyone the frenzy of festive improvisation now taking place at the foreign student's dorm. It was Robert who'd instigated yesterday's Christmas Eve tree-raiding expedition. Callum had been among the dozen or so members of the International Coalition Commando Force, another of Robert's phrases. First thing Christmas morning, Callum had literally written home about it. The hour's bike ride to the Summer Palace. The foraged branches smuggled through the exit beneath their stiff green overcoats. The triumphal ride home, each flying pigeon brand bicycle festooned with a ransacked limb. The resulting frankentree, branches bound together with string, had been decorated with extemporized baubles, earrings, bus tickets, stamps from the care packages sent from home, scraps of calligraphy practice paper. All four stories of the dorm had been converted into a complex of impromptu arts and crafts workshops. On their heroic exit, Callum and Robert's loud proclamation of their mission to save Christmas had elicited cheers from every open bedroom door. Homesick students interrupted their craft activities to give them the thumbs up. And what a variety of activities. Every improvised paper chain, streamer, banner, party hat, someone was even having a crack at crackers, defied the indifference beyond the doorway duvet. It was truly international. Classmates from all over the world were nearly all mucking in, even the Muslims, Buddhists and Hindus. Like all non-Asian-looking foreigners, Callum, Robert and their cohort of a dozen or so Edinburgh University students had discovered it was surprisingly hard to meet Chinese people at the Beijing Foreign Languages University. This mattered less when it was so easy to meet the rest of the world. They now lived cheek by jowl with just about any other nationality you cared to mention. The Lao Wai dorm was populated by people from around the planet, all fascinated by some aspect of Chinese culture, language, martial arts or expertise. The Brits, for some reason, were leading the Christmas push, but had been enthusiastically joined by French, Dutch, Belgians, Portuguese, Americans, Canadians, Russians, Cubans, Angolans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans. Even the Mongolians were pitching in. Their grasp of Christmas was sketchy, but they were always up for any party involving drinking. Baikar and Purevdoj had just arrived with their contribution to the festivities. Litre bottles of vodka mysteriously acquired from their embassy. Four of them held aloft in triumph beneath two broad grins. They were immediately roped into making paper chains from coloured paper, having added two vodka bottle tops to the Frankentree decorations. The only ones not joining in were the North Koreans. But, as Callum had remarked to Robert when they passed their closed doors in the dorm, the North Koreans never joined in with anything. Callum tried to imagine himself uttering that sentence at all, let alone in such a throwaway manner three months ago. Kakodi, for so long Callum's entire world, was now looking very parochial. They'd reached the campus main gate. While Robert transferred a glove to his mouth in order to locate the scrap of coloured paper bearing the directions, Callum scanned the crossroads outside the gate. He took in the chaotic masses of students, street-side vendors, bicycles and buses, and pondered the maze of possible paths that lay before them. Had he glanced back, Kokordi would have been a speck in the far distance. Part 3. The Mission Jenny from Leeds and Valérie from Marseille were in charge of Christmas dinner. 
It was their idle remark on how nice it would be to have a turkey that had launched Callum and Robert's mission to save Christmas. A turkey. This was the object of Callum and Robert's Christmas Day quest. This was what had driven them from the comfort bubble of the dorm into the bleak cacophony of Beijing streets on the morning of December the 25th, 1984. The slot between the peak of Callum's fur hat and the top of his scarf afforded him the field of vision of a fully armoured medieval knight. He suddenly realised Robert was no longer beside him. He turned back and saw Robert chasing the scrap of coloured paper bearing the directions, to the great amusement of a row of peasants selling vegetables outside the campus main gate. They all smiled broadly, leaned over to their neighbours and pointed as Robert trapped the scrap of paper with a stamp of a black cotton-padded corduroy boot. Ignoring them, Robert resumed his study of the coloured paper. Between the wind, his gloves and deciphering his own writing, Robert was clearly struggling. Callum watched, as amused as the vegetable sellers. Robert glanced to his left, shook his head, re-examined his piece of paper and then pointed a decisive gloved finger to the right. Callum and Robert's strides soon resynchronized. Their conversation now turned to the reliability of the directions they were following. They began to share their doubts about their turkey guru, Vim. Vim was a Dutch economics postgrad and veteran of three Beijing winters. He had the best room on the top floor and seemed to know just about everything. It was Vim who'd revealed the mystery of the 1970s Euro disco that formed the soundtrack of public life in China in 1984. Apparently, the Ministry of Propaganda had recently started approving a few foreign songs and Chinese radio had embraced them with enthusiasm. Vim couldn't explain why half the approved songs were by Boney M, or why this particular German confected disco combo represented the acceptable face of capitalism. Callum, a music connoisseur, found this daily exposure to Boney M particularly tortuous. They're giving it the full Dr. Seuss, he'd once said, after spending eight hours standing on a rammed train listening to non-stop tra-la-la-la-laing. On a train, on a plane, on a boat, with a bloody goat. I do not like that Boney M, I do not like that stratagem. Callum, Robert and their Edinburgh University classmates, weaned on punk and now supping on new romantics, suspected it was an act of subversion. If repeated exposure to one-way ticket, rah-rah Rasputin and the rivers of Babylon, Robert had said, didn't convince a Chinese proletariat not to touch capitalism with a barge pole, nothing would. Vim, the Dutch oracle, said that in China everything was political but Politburo subtlety probably didn't extend to differentiating between genres of Western pop music. Vim speculated it was all part of a high-level rapprochement. He'd even heard a rumour China was negotiating with Wham to tour China. Much as Callum and Robert had learned to respect Vim's encyclopedic knowledge of China, that was too ludicrous and surreal to take seriously. Vim had been able to answer many of their questions about their new home, but his three years in China hadn't left him unaffected. Vim's doctoral thesis had something to do with street markets, but his main passion seemed to involve bedding as many women as was practical. Jenny and Valérie being both attractive and unconquered, Vim had been loitering in their room when he'd overheard the mentioned mission Turkey. Eager to impress, Vim had mentioned that one of his sources had just told him about a new street market specialising in poultry. He'd already told them that all the red-faced roadside vegetable sellers were a very recent phenomenon. 
It was only a couple of years, he said, since the Chinese leadership had permitted peasants to use small plots of communal farmland to grow their own produce. This produce, he explained, they could sell for personal profit. The new students, like Jenny, Valerie, Callum and Robert, were familiar with the vegetable sellers, but none of them had ever even heard of a roadside meat seller. The canteen at their foreign students' dorm had a pork dish every day, but they were aware that for most Chinese, meat was still a once-a-year luxury. These days, Vim told them, as he edged along the bed towards Jenny, it seemed some city dwellers could now afford to eat meat quite often. Do you think Vim noticed us sniggering when he started going on about how excited he was at the advent of a meat market? Callum asked Robert. Nah, he was too busy trying to get into Jenny's knickers, said Robert. But do you think that what Vim said about the friendship store selling out of all those turkeys they fly in for the embassies is really true? Was he really interested in helping us find a turkey, or was he simply showing off in front of the ladies? He was eliminating two of his most powerful mating rivals for as long as possible, said Callum. Robert Scarf barely muffled his bark of laughter. Now he thought about it, Vim had been particularly insistent that this new market was their only hope of buying a turkey in Beijing that morning. To be fair, Vim had warned them it was a long shot, and he'd added that if they were lucky enough to find a turkey, it was almost certain to be alive. But by this point, Callum and Robert had already accepted the turkey challenge, so they decided to cross that bridge, or wring that neck, when the time came. A long shot was good enough for Callum and Robert. It would only take one peasant to decide that his path to riches was paved with turkeys, and in a couple of hours they'd be returning to the dorm as the heroes who saved Christmas. Callum gave an involuntary wince as they approached a street barber and began copping a blast of one-way ticket to the moon. Robert noticed Callum's reaction and pulled a sympathetic face. Don't be too harsh, he said. Poor bloke's just trying to make a living. They'd discussed this before. Peasant entrepreneurs may not have shared the refined musical tastes of British second-year university students, but they knew how to sniff new opportunities to make some cash. This one must have reckoned investing in a radio would give him that extra edge as he was the only one with a customer, an old man having his head shaved with a cutthroat razor, maybe he was right. They passed a row of five hessian sacks laid out on the pavement, each heaped with one kind of vegetable, each accompanied by a squatting peasant. As the Lao Wai passed, the peasants glanced up, dangling the scales they used to measure how many jin of spring onions, chili peppers, potatoes, carrots, garlic, or whatever it was that they'd been giving a lot more care and attention than the crops destined for the state. Callum jerked his head towards another row of squatting peasants as they passed them. Were they here last week? he asked Robert. Robert shrugged. It was impossible to keep pace with China's emerging entrepreneurship. The reforms had opened up a tiny crack in the command economy which was now being breached by a mob. My Tai Chi teacher said that in winter there used to be loads of vegetable shortages, said Callum, but now he can always buy anything. Look at that woman by the bicycle repair place. She's selling eggs. Never seen that before, said Robert. If nothing else, Vim has a bumper harvest of material for his thesis. He said he was thinking of calling it Observations on the Invention of Capitalism in Real Time. Callum said Vim says he's still puzzled as to how people get the cash to buy meat. He said he's heard they're going to stop the ration tickets for meat, grain, oil and cloth next year, but doesn't understand how it's possible. He says it's fascinating because there aren't many ways Chinese people can earn personal cash, officially. Yeah, said Robert, but he's not quite so fascinated that he wanted to join us on our hunt for a bird, is he? 
Callum knew Robert was grinning beneath his scarf. Truth be told, neither Callum nor Robert was all that bothered about the turkey. This was just another round of the daily initiative test and obstacle course that constituted daily life in 1984 China. Callum was already mentally writing it up for his next letter home. Robert stopped again to check their turkey treasure map. He pushed up his glasses to examine his laborious, childlike Chinese writing. There was a lot that could go wrong, thought Callum. Vim had never actually been to this meat market. His directions to get there were second-hand, and it involved two bus changes. Plus, he may have made the whole thing up to clear the field. It wouldn't have been hard for Vim to confuse them. Not only were they strangers to Beijing, but Callum and Robert had only been studying the language a bit over a year. Even simple directions presented a considerable linguistic challenge. Vim had been studying Chinese for more than a decade and was in his third year in Beijing, and he seemed to know pretty much everything. Robert had diligently written down all the street names, navigation landmarks, cardinal directions, bus numbers and destinations onto the coloured paper. They had reached a major crossroads and he was now examining it again. Callum bent over to try to help but struggled to make sense of Robert's notes. I find your character hard to decipher, he said, pointing to one of Robert's childish scrawls, deploying one of their growing range of in-jokes. Robert gave his usual response, for some reason always delivered in a high-pitched Scottish accent. Aye, well, there's the human condition for you. In fact, Callum was finding Robert's character easier to decipher and was finding himself enjoying these kinds of convoluted running gags. He found them almost as amusing as Robert did, but only almost. No one found them as amusing as Robert did. Ah, exclaimed Robert, rotating the scrap of paper 180 degrees. He gave a confident nod towards an improbably located four-storey high chimney, a landmark Vim said he thought might be part of a defunct brickworks. As they set off, Callum silently shook his muffled head in wonder. Three months ago, he'd have been happy to leave this kind of mission to other people. Now, he was volunteering for them. Robert always seemed to relish such challenges. When he'd met him in that first Chinese class at uni, Callum had attributed Robert's self-confidence to his public school education, but now no such thoughts even crossed his mind. There were more pressing matters to which to attend. It was Christmas, and they were hunting for turkey. Part 4. Fire Chicken When Jenny and Valérie first started talking turkey, not only did neither of them have the first clue where to find one, they hadn't even known how to say turkey in Chinese. They'd consulted the Chinese oracle, but it had turned out that not even Vim knew the Chinese word for turkey. They'd all turned to him, sitting on the bed. Vim's mouth had opened confidently, but then remained open. His eyes had begun inspecting the corners of the ceiling in search of the answer. He had the air of a designated driver in front of a group of shivering friends, patting his pockets in search of the key he knew he'd put somewhere, or a priest at a critical meeting with the bishop, discovering an unexpected hole in his cassock. As Vim's Chinese seemed, to Callum and Robert, to be better than that of most native speakers, his admission that he'd never actually come across the word, or couldn't remember ever having had to use it, had made them question the wisdom of their mission to save Christmas. Vim held up a finger, sprang up from the bed and disappeared from the room. While they awaited his return, Robert made his inevitable quip about a wild turkey chase. Vim returned triumphant, 
a chunky English-Chinese dictionary in his hand. When showing them the entry for Turkey, he stood unnecessarily close to Valérie and somehow contrived to insert Jenny between the open dictionary and his index finger. It had been at this point that Robert had asked about the possibility of buying a turkey in Beijing on a December the 25th morning. Vim mentioned this meat market, and before long Robert had declared his mission to save Christmas and requested volunteers to join him. Robert's invitation had not been greeted with general enthusiasm. The dormitory was relatively warm, and one of the bottles of Mongolian vodka was already empty. Vim, the economist, ran the numbers. He calculated the marginal future benefit of successfully executing the plan against its low probability of success. He factored in the sunk benefit of having already provided the mission-critical intelligence. He conducted a cost-benefit analysis. He said he'd stay and help Jenny and Valérie peel the potatoes. Callum, however, quickly offered to join what by now Robert was calling the Turkish Expeditionary Force. As they shrugged on their padded cotton greatcoats and located their hats, gloves and scarves, Callum and Robert strategized. They debated whether the Chinese had any common point of reference with which they could communicate the object of their Christmas mercy mission. They compared turkey impersonations. Robert grabbed a scrap of coloured paper from the Frankentree and started asking Vim for critical vocabulary and directions to the meat market. And now, Robert and Callum were once again consulting this scrap of paper at the foot of the four-storey high chimney. They ignored the offers of assistance of a group of schoolboys with red scarves who'd formed an audience the moment they'd stopped. The tallest schoolboy suddenly pointed at the first two characters Robert had written at the top of his piece of paper. He read them out in a loud voice, setting off his friends and everyone else within earshot into paroxysms of glee. Even the exceller across the road started laughing. Callum and Robert joined in, repeating the two characters before resuming their purposeful walk. They encanted, left, right, left, right, their footsteps gradually synchronizing. What were the characters again? asked Callum. As in fire, as in chicken, replied Robert, still smiling. Fire chicken. I'll never think of a turkey any other way. Callum smiled beneath his scarf. His classmates, friends and family back home in Kokodi had all been baffled when he told them he was going to study Chinese. He told Robert he intended to add fire chicken to the list of translations for his next letter home, part of his effort to get them to understand. In that morning's letter, he told Robert, he'd included the wonderfully poetic Chinese word for movie, jianying, made up of the characters meaning electric and shadows. Oh, don't forget that brilliant translation for Coca-Cola, said Robert. Bottles of Coke were now available at Beijing's fancier hotels for the first time since liberation. Kerkokerla read the first four characters, written in white on a red background on the bottles. Tasty and delightful. Vim the Omniscient had told them Coke's first effort at transliteration, back in the 1920s, had used the characters for Bite the Wax Tadpole. They too were pronounced Kerkokerla, but as Robert had remarked, delivered a subtly different marketing punch. Callum tried to imagine his friends back home cacking themselves as hard as he had when Robert had said this, but pictured only blank faces. Being British teenagers in China in 1984 was a powerful bonding experience in itself, but in their three months together there, 
Callum, Robert and their Edinburgh classmates had developed their own impenetrable slang. It was all based on the limitless potential for humiliation and misunderstanding provided by getting your tones wrong in Chinese. For example, deng xia means wait a moment. Deng xia means bench a shrimp. They soon started to substitute English mistranslations of their Chinese mispronunciations into their daily speech. This became a secret code that rendered their conversations almost entirely impenetrable to any native speaker who hadn't shared their experience. Just bench a shrimp, will you? They'd peevishly reply to anyone urging them to get a move on. Or, before long, geez, substitute a crustacean, won't you, for God's sake? Sometimes they'd forget the origins of their own extended gags, confusing even themselves. No wonder the Chinese stared at them all the time if they kept telling them to bench shrimps. And that's not even taking account of their gradual realization of their huge cross-cultural gaffes. For the first few weeks, before the weather had turned too cold, many of them had worn light cotton tracksuits they'd found in the People's Number 5 department store. The tracksuit counter was just next to the place they'd bought those magnificent padded silk dressing gowns. That was one floor up from the counter that sold the square pink toilet paper, sold by weight. Their gradually improving Chinese, plus some straight talking from some of the older hands like Vim, had recently revealed the terrible truth. Those weren't light cotton tracksuits they went jogging in, but underwear. And those padded silk dressing gowns were actually funeral shrouds for dressing corpses. And that pink toilet paper, which so amused them to buy by the kilo, were, in fact, sanitary towels. Callum hadn't written home about all of this stuff. He was starting to wonder if anyone back home would have the first idea of what he was now experiencing, or find any of it as amusing as he and Robert did whenever they blew their noses with pink tissue paper. Oh well, thought Callum. That's probably why his old school friends were still in Kokodi, and he was now in China, hunting for fire chickens on a crisp, dry Christmas morning where it was just a day like any other. Part 5. Clock and Elvis. Clock and Elvis literally didn't know the meaning of Christmas, Callum said, and they're postgrads. Clock Wang and Elvis Lee were two of the sparkier students Callum and Robert had met the week before. Despite being Dutch, Vim had somehow wangled himself a gig teaching English to mature students at the Institute of Coal Mining. Being lumped together as outside country people had its benefits. For a laugh, Vim had asked if any of the new lot from Edinburgh University fancied being guest lecturers. Robert and Callum had grabbed the opportunity, as talking to Chinese students was proving to be much harder than they'd imagined. Vim had explained there was no money in it for them, but he'd promised it would be a fun and interesting experience. And so it had turned out. On the way to the Coal Mining Institute, Vim had explained to Callum and Robert why they were finding it so hard to meet Chinese students. It's nothing to do with you, he'd said. I've had no problem making Chinese friends, even when my Chinese was as shit as yours. By now, they knew that Vim wasn't being rude, just Dutch. And anyway, they knew their Chinese had a long way to go before they could converse as fluently as Vim and his fellow Dutch postgrads could. And it was reassuring to learn that they weren't to blame for their isolation from the Chinese students. 
From the moment they'd been housed in the designated foreign student dorm, it had been clear that though they might share a campus with the Chinese students, in practical terms, they inhabited parallel universes. The dormitories, even their canteens, were segregated. To enter the foreign student's dorm, Chinese students had to register with a hatchet-faced guard at the front desk, who seemed to see his job as that of prison guard rather than cross-cultural facilitator. Maybe it was. There was no official ban on foreigners going into Chinese dorms, but without any Chinese friends to invite you, they were effectively off-limits. Entering uninvited would have felt touristy and disrespectful, and there was zero possibility of slipping in unnoticed. Even at the Foreign Languages University, Western-looking foreigners were an exotic species. Their Japanese and South Korean doormates could get away with it if they dressed down, but big noses turned out to be a real giveaway. The students might not gather in five deep crowds, as happened if you stopped for even a minute on a busy public street, but on campus there was still no such thing as an unobtrusive Lao Wai. Some of the old hands, like Vim, had developed friendships with Chinese students who'd smuggled their foreign friends into their dorms for drinking parties. Vim had told them the dorms used by Chinese students were built to exactly the same design as the foreign ones, but instead of the single bed the Laowai had to themselves, each Chinese room contained eight bunk beds. When I first came here three years ago, it was twelve to a room, Vim had told them, before he'd sweet-talked the guard at the entrance to the coal mining institute into letting his guests in. The guard looked confused and, having no reason to say no, just waved them through. Vim guided Callum and Robert through the cold, bare corridors leading to the classroom. In the Chinese dorms, no hot water ever. Intermittent cold water, he told them. Vim, who was an adventurous eater, had said he wouldn't give the food from the Chinese students' canteen to his dog. And this was one of China's top universities in the national capital. Callum and Robert looked at each other, each deciding not to ever make any further complaints, even to each other, about the cracked windows, rationed hot water, intermittent power and limited canteen menu at the foreign students' dorm. No wonder some of the Chinese students sometimes muttered some of those less complimentary terms for foreigner, big nose and foreign devils when they passed. So you see, it's not personal, Vim had continued, on the way up the staircase to the classroom where 30 coal mining engineers awaited them. You see, there's a power struggle taking place at the highest levels of Chinese government, and you're just feeling the distant ripples. This was the kind of talk that made Callum and Robert feel really naive. Deng Xiaoping and his fellow reformers had still not completely wrested control of the billion-strong nation from the remnant cultural revolution diehards, Vim had explained, and had to throw them the odd bone. That's when Vim had taught them a new phrase, Jingshan Wuran, or spiritual pollution. This, he explained, was the name of the political campaign that was code for don't trust anything foreign. That had only just started before they arrived in September. Jingshan Wuran. Spiritual pollution. Robert rolled the phrase around his mouth, as if tasting a fine wine, and tried it out. Stop whinging about the pork and cabbage on the canteen menu, you capitalist running dog, he said to Callum. You're polluting my spirit. Spare me your big-nosed contagion. As Vim had introduced them to the rows of Chinese coal miners, Callum and Robert suddenly realised how unusual it was, even after three months, to have this chance to practice their classroom Chinese with real Chinese people. 
Sure, they'd exchange words with the red-faced serving staff at the canteen, or haggle with the peasants selling vegetables by the roadside, or try to attract the attention of the shop assistants slumped on the glass counters at the number five department store. But these had been the limits of their everyday interactions with ordinary Chinese people, and now they had a name to explain why. Jingshen Wuran, spiritual pollution. That was why so few students were prepared to risk being seen talking to a foreigner in public. By now, Vim had finished his introductions and everyone was now looking expectantly at the guest lecturers. Callum and Robert launched into their halting self-introductions. Their Chinese was improving rapidly, but Callum, Robert and the other second-year classmates were still limited by their childish capacity to express themselves. They switched rapidly to English, as this was, after all, what they were supposed to be there for. Watching as Vim intervened every now and then to explain something, Callum and Robert were once again in awe of his command of the language. But they also knew that even fluent speakers like Vim faced what they called performing monkey syndrome. These educated coal engineers weren't too bad, but most Chinese were so dumbstruck at actually encountering a flesh-and-blood Lao Wai, they barely registered the noises coming from their mouths. Those that did eventually engage in conversation were usually more interested in asking questions, usually about how much things cost, than engaging in what Callum and Robert considered normal conversation. They had already endured hundreds of questionnaires about the price of everything from cabbage to university fees, and the novelty had long worn off. The class was pretty unresponsive in general, but Clock and Elvis stood out. They were engaged, funny, observant, quick to learn, and happy to raise their hands when no one else did. Which is why chatting to Clock and Elvis after the lesson was over had been such fun and so interesting. The classroom environment provided protection from accusations of spiritual pollution, but Clock and Elvis didn't seem too bothered by such things anyway. They quickly got past the performing monkey stage, and between Callum and Robert's still kindergarten Chinese and Clock and Elvis's book-learned English, they'd actually managed to have something akin to a normal conversation. Clock and Elvis had asked them about coal mining in England. Robert had attempted to relay the ongoing struggle between Mrs. Thatcher and the miners, and immediately regretted it. As soon as he'd embarked on it, he realised he lacked almost all the necessary vocabulary. Looking up trade union in a Chinese dictionary turned out only to confuse matters further, as they had very different functions in Britain and the People's Republic of China. Callum's patient explanation of the difference between England, Scotland and Great Britain, on the other hand, was quite fluent by now. He duly deployed it when Elvis asked him if there was any coal mining in his part of England. Callum delivered his usual meticulous delineation of the distinctions between Yingguo, England, Sugarland, Scotland and Bulletien, Great Britain, which as usual was received with comprehensive incomprehension. At least they thought they'd managed to get to the bottom of Clock and Elvis's English names. Clock had simply looked up the English word for his Chinese name in the dictionary. He was cheerfully unconcerned at their diplomatic attempts to explain that Clock was not a common name in English. Elvis's name had been the whim of a previous foreign tutor who had assigned the entire class English names. Callum and Robert reckoned they knew who it must have been when Elvis introduced his classmates, Muddy and Blind Lemon. After these pleasantries, their conversation had gone deeply weird. As they approached the bus stop, still in lockstep, Callum and Robert tried to reconstruct the conversation and compare their understandings of what the two Chinese students had actually said. The bus stop 
was a red-painted pole with a few bus numbers and their destinations handwritten on a square of bare plywood. Part 6. The Bus Stop Robert broke off his intense conversation with Callum to peer at the bare plywood square attached with string to the red pole that constituted the bus stop. While Robert compared the handwritten numbers on the plywood with those scribbled on his scrap of coloured paper, Callum wondered why this particular conversation was bugging them so much. It was partly, he thought, because it had covered such different ground. The spiritual pollution campaign made routine conversation with ordinary Chinese rare, but this one hadn't followed the usual pattern of a consumer price index questionnaire. Those kinds of interrogations on the price of this and the cost of that not only quickly became tedious, but they only entrenched their feeling of being outsiders, exotic aliens, performing monkeys, waigwaren, outside country people. This lunch break conversation with two of the liveliest students in the classroom full of 30-something mining engineers had been their first experience outside the Waigwaren bubble. It felt like they'd been admitted to the reality of 1984 China, granted a glimpse of the lived experience of its billion citizens. What had been blurry had suddenly snapped into sharp focus, but their limited language ability meant they still had to squint hard to understand what it was they were seeing. Robert had completed his reconnaissance. Yep, this is the right place. Uh, keep an eye out for a 380 or 388. Ignore any bus that starts with a four. His mission to save Christmas responsibilities discharged, Robert carefully tucked their precious directions to the mythical meat market into his overcoat pocket. He turned back to Callum and they immediately resumed their forensic reconstruction of last week's conversation with Clock and Elvis. They barely registered the stir their arrival had caused among the waiting knot of passengers at the bus stop. Foreign students quickly got used to being the centre of attention whenever they were out and about in public. They'd tell each other they now knew what it was like to be a mega-celebrity like Madonna or Bono. No matter how many times they may have walked down a road, every time there'd be dozens of Chinese encountering their first ever real-life foreigner. There wasn't much entertainment around, no billboards, barely any shops, so it made sense for the locals to make the most of this opportunity. Sure enough, the waiting passengers at the bus stop soon encircled the two Laowai, like tourists around street performers. They examined the Laowai up and down, exchanged muttered observations with their neighbours, guilelessly staring until the human exhibits moved on or something more pressing showed up, like their bus. But so immersed were Callum and Robert in trying to figure out what Clark and Elvis had been trying to tell them, they may as well have been sitting on one of their bedrooms back at the foreign student's dorm. I didn't recognise and can't remember the exact words Clark used, said Callum, but it was pretty obvious from his body language what he meant. Robert nodded, his brow furrowed as he tried to remember. A bus approached. Robert briefly double-checked the bus numbers on his coloured paper, peering over the heads of their disappearing audience now swarming towards the bus as it approached the bus stop in a hiss of brakes. Bus doors opened, revealing its jam-packed interior. 
All buses in Beijing were always jam-packed. No one got off, yet the waiting passengers, undeterred, began to elbow and jostle their way aboard. Robert usually enjoyed witnessing this logistical miracle, but instead he turned back to Callum, recreating a gesture he remembered Clock had made. He slid an imaginary bolt and pressed the heels of his palms together. What else could that be but international sign language for a locked door and handcuffs, he asked. Callum nodded. Clock was definitely saying he'd been locked up, but I'm sure the point he was trying to make was that he'd been locked up right there. If not in that very classroom, then at least in the same building or at the Coal Mining Institute. Mm, I think so too. And Elvis kept saying, Chinian, Chinian, even holding up his fingers, said Robert. Seven years, locked in that building, the same place where he was now laughing and joking with us. Can that really have been what he was telling us? We both heard him say, said Callum, solemnly. They both fell silent. One of their audience, a neatly dressed man with white hair, appeared to wince. The phrase wasn't to be found in their Beijing textbooks, but they'd learnt it in first year back in Edinburgh and knew it meant the Cultural Revolution. One of the lecturers had been an impish provocateur who'd made a point of teaching them common communist propaganda terms like Great Leap Forward, Class Traitor, Capitalist Running Dogs and Cultural Revolution. Robert, who'd committed all these phrases to memory and how to write them, had spotted Wenhua Dagaming a couple of times, remnant propaganda slogans daubed onto obscure back alley walls. As Vim and his fellow old China hands at the foreign student storm had pointed out, the spiritual pollution campaign currently hobbling their interactions with ordinary Chinese was a kind of aftershock of the seismic national madness that had gripped China from 1966. It was only Mao's death a decade later that had ended the Cultural Revolution, but its corpse still twitched. Clock had been the first Chinese person they'd ever heard say the phrase. By now, the bus had rumbled off. All but one of their former audience had somehow insinuated their way aboard. The remaining passenger was the elegant, white-haired, but not particularly old-looking man. He hadn't made any effort to board the bus. He now stood a couple of steps away from Callum and Robert. Unlike the other passengers already joining him, this man wasn't staring at them. He stood, his hands clasped behind his straight back, his eyes raised to the sky, but his head slightly tilted towards them, as if eavesdropping. He wore the same faded cotton mouse suit as everyone else, but there was something oddly stylish about him almost dapper. Callum and Robert, still engrossed in their conversation, were oblivious to him and the rest of their new and growing audience. Robert was now telling Callum what the older China hands at the dorm had made of their disturbing conversation with Clock and Elvis. You know Vim's mate, that other Dutch bloke doing his doctorate on Chinese translations of English literature, Robert was saying. He's been in China as long as Vim, and they've both heard many such stories. They reckoned it was perfectly plausible for Clock to have been incarcerated in that very classroom for years during the Cultural Revolution. Most of Callum and Robert's bus stop audience were briefly distracted by the distant rumble of a bus. Fascinating though watching the two Laowai was, they had places to go, things to do. It was, after all, December the 25th, just a day like any other. 
Part 7 Dapper Man Hazy in Beijing's dust-filled winter air, the bus's outline gradually appeared and then loomed above the flow of cyclists filing along the straight road. It would be a minute or two before anyone could discern its number. Dapper Man hadn't moved a muscle. Having spotted the bus, the rest of the crowd turned back to catch the rest of the show. There was still time for some Laowai entertainment before elbow and jostle time. It may have been a while since the foreigners had uttered an intelligible Chinese word, but it was still gripping stuff. Robert was still reporting what he'd gleaned from the Dutch PhD students at the dorm. Vim's mate said it was quite common for class traitors to be imprisoned in their homes or places of work, but they still found it amazing that Clock could have been so untraumatized at being back in his jail cell. Maybe, said Callum, maybe when a whole country of a billion people goes that crazy for that long, it's not such a big deal for any individual. As these words came from his mouth, Callum could feel them turning to ice and falling at his feet. Robert discreetly ignored them. Both teenagers felt out of their depth, unqualified to even speculate on such matters. Callum imagined telling this story to his friends back in Kirkodi and wondered how it would sound. At least Clock was in Beijing, where his family's from, Robert eventually continued. Millions of people with the wrong class background were exiled to dirt-poor villages thousands of miles from home. Xiaxiang, they called it, being sent down to the countryside. At this familiar Chinese word, some of the crowd looked at each other. The dapper man stretched his shoulders and shivered. Maybe it was the cold. The bus number was almost visible now. Some of the crowd were getting jittery. But dapper man resumed his previous stance, observant but still unobserved by Callum and Robert. Their audience having now reformed as a rugby scrum around the bus stop, Robert peered over the backs of their heads at the approaching bus. Nah, not this one, Robert said. The bus doors hissed open, revealing an apparently jam-packed bus, elbows jostled and the miracle of passenger osmosis repeated itself. A few of the crowd, having seen it wasn't their bus either, instead jostled for front row positions in the free bus stop La Wai show. Dapper Man had remained motionless throughout, not even looking at the bus number. Callum and Robert noticed him for the first time, before resuming their conversation. Robert began relating what Vim's mate, the one doing a PhD on Chinese translations of English literature, had told him about his new academic supervisor. Apparently, there are loads of veteran academics coming back now, he said. Vim taught me the characters. They call it Ping Fan. With this, Robert sketched the characters on the palm of his hand, a reflex they'd picked up from Chinese people used when explaining which characters they mean. Callum and Robert found it impossible to follow the imaginary brushstrokes and often joked about it by air-writing something with their hands facing themselves and then displaying empty palms to each other. Normally, one of them would have deployed this in-joke at this point, particularly as the fact that they were wearing thick gloves would have made it even funnier. A peasant on a bicycle festooned with dozens of live geese heaved his way past. He was cycling carefully and not very fast, but he still overtook another peasant who was holding a radio to his ear as he pedaled his flatbed tricycle occupied by a single beast. The radio, inevitably, was playing one-way ticket. His passenger was an enormous sow 
hogtied and contained in a kind of carrying cage fashioned from strips of bamboo. Normally, this would have engaged Callum and Robert's full attention, but neither of them even noticed this passing traffic. As the honking and one-way ticket faded away, they resumed their conversation. The characters for Ping Fan mean something like having your conviction overturned or rehabilitated, Robert said. They use it when they bring back people with the wrong class background who'd been sent to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution as class traitors. Now it was Callum's turn to recall one of the communist propaganda phrases they'd been taught the previous year. Capitalist running dogs. At this Chinese phrase, a ripple ran through their bus stop audience. But they were soon distracted as another bus emerged from the dusty haze, apparently borne along the river of bicycles that never seemed to stop flowing. Certainly not on December the 25th. The bus began to decelerate and all the crowd but one began to jostle for red-painted pole position. The dapper eavesdropper, hands still clasped behind his back, somehow now seemed to be standing half a step closer. Exactly, said Robert. The kind of people they call capitalist running dogs are now having their sins absolved. They can now return home to the cities and go back to their old jobs. Well, what made them change their minds, asked Callum. Vim said it's because the universities suddenly value these people's expertise more than whether they were class traitor or not, said Robert. They've only just reintroduced university entrance exams. Until a couple of years ago, all they cared about was how extreme a red guard nutter you were. Now they want people who know more than just how to wave the little red book around and chant slogans. Dapper Man seemed about to say something when Robert said, Hang on, that's the number 388. We can take this one. Callum and Robert continued their conversation as they joined their former audience in the waiting scrum. Callum said, So all these professors who spent the past decade mucking out pig farms in Inner Mongolia or threshing wheat in Xinjiang, they're now being, what did you call it? Ping fund? Rehabilitated, said Robert. Vim's mate, the one studying Chinese translations of Jane Austen, he's just been assigned this new supervisor who's just been ping fund. Apparently, he's this incredible scholar who was educated in English at some Jesuit college in Shanghai in the 1930s. He was doing some postdoc in Oxford when the communists took over, and after liberation, he came back to help rebuild the motherland. The bus was only a few seconds from stopping now, and the jostling had intensified. He was head of our uni's English department, said Robert, but got sent to Tibet in 1967 because his uncle had a servant or something. Apparently he's astonishingly smart and well-read and talks like Mr. Darcy. Callum nudged Robert with his elbow. The two teenage students braced themselves by the red pole, knees bent, elbows akimbo, like speed skaters at the starting line. It had the desired effect of parting the crowd, astonished that the monkeys were finally performing. As the doors hissed and the crowd began to envelop them, the dapper man addressed Callum and Robert in flawless English. I beg your pardon, gentlemen. May I inquire if, by any chance, you might be British, an Englishman and a Scotsman, perchance? As the crowd closed around them, propelling them onto the bus, the Englishman and the Scotsman could only snap their heads back, nodding, yes, open-mouthed. Now they were the astonished ones. Before the doors closed on them, they thought they heard the dapper man say, almost to himself, Ah, yes, I thought as much. Your accents betrayed you. 
Episode 8 Talking Turkey We left Callum and Robert straining their necks, open-mouthed, mute with astonishment, as the bus doors hiss shut behind them. The bus pulls away. Dapper Man stands at the bus stop, his hands still clasped behind his back, his head still cocked to one side. He grows smaller. Within seconds, he disappears behind one of the buses and lorries, floating trees and houses borne along by the flood torrent of bicycles. In 1984 Beijing, after all, December the 25th is just a day like any other. Tucked inside the pocket of Robert's army-issue cotton-padded overcoat is the piece of colored paper with Vim's instructions to get to the mythical meat market. A few hundred meters behind them, back at the foreign student's dorm, classmates and friends from around the world await the result of Callum and Robert's mission to save Christmas. Does the meat market even exist? If it exists, will Callum and Robert, with their elementary Chinese, be able to find it? If they find it, will it have a turkey for sale? If there's a turkey, will it be alive or dead? If it's alive, how are Callum and Robert going to kill it? So many questions. Which would you like answered first? Would you like to hear what Callum and Robert said to each other once they'd recovered the power of speech? Or are you more curious about Dapper Man and how he ended up speaking like Mr. Darcy? I've implied that Dapper Man and the PhD supervisor for Vim's friend, the one studying Chinese translations of Jane Austen, are the same person. But could they be different people? Maybe after all that business about finding a turkey on Christmas Day, you'd like the turkey issue resolved first. You want to discover whether Callum and Robert's mission to save Christmas ended in success or failure. What's your vote? Turkeys may not vote for Christmas, but this is your chance to vote turkey in a Christmas story. Fine, let's talk turkey then. First off, is any of this true? I've told you this story was written by Stern writer, but what else do you know about me? For a start, am I, the person reading this script I've claimed is by Stern writer, Stern writer? What kind of a name is Stern writer anyway? And where are all these other noises coming from? Let's have those geese again, Sam. Do you really think we recorded dozens of live geese on a bicycle? How would you even know what that sounded like? Did you not know that geese go mute when suspended upside down? Hmm, probably not, as I just made that up. At the end of each episode, I say this podcast series is called The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories by See Through News. I mentioned the See Through News website and its goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. What does any of this have to do with carbon drawdown? And what the hell is carbon drawdown, anyway? And what are inactive and active supposed to mean in this context? So far, this episode has contained a lot of questions. But have you noticed a sly trick? I started out asking myself, the writer, 
questions on your behalf. But then I started asking you, the listener, questions instead. Have you noticed? I'm asking you another question right now. Isn't it about time you got some answers after investing so much time in Callum and Robert and their mission to save Christmas? It's perfectly natural to want to know how the story finishes, and it's perfectly natural to want all the narrative threads neatly tied up, Agatha Christie style. Here's another question. How often, in real life, have you found all the narrative threads neatly tied up, Agatha Christie style? Have you ever known anyone to live happily ever after? When you think about it, is living happily ever after even such a great prospect? Happy ever after implies stasis, stalemate, inaction, a place where nothing ever happens. In the real world, loads of things are happening all the time. We're in constant change. Indeed, the changes we're experiencing now are happening on a planetary scale and at unprecedented pace. Real life is messy, unpredictable, very much unresolved. In our The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories podcast, we tell you that we tell you fictionalized true stories. I have not been issuing blow-by-blow -blow updates on which bits of this story are true and which are lies. That would have been tiresome spoiled the flow, got in the way. If you feel left in suspense, open-mouthed like Callum and Robert on the bus, seeing Dapper Man being swallowed up by the Beijing traffic, you must be itching for some resolution. Well, Callum and Robert never found the market. They were so discombobulated by the Dapper Man incident, they pushed their way off the bus at the next stop. They raced back along the crowded pavements, dodging vegetable sellers and schoolchildren, craning their necks above the heads of Beijing's pedestrians. When Callum and Robert finally made it back to the bus stop, a knot of passengers was already gathering. They turned to the foreigners and immediately formed a new audience. If you're entertained by Lao Wai just standing there and chatting to each other, imagine how much better it would be to find Lao Wai with their hands on their knees, chests heaving, great plumes of vapor emerging from their panting mouths. Callum and Robert scanned their audience for Dapper Man, but none of this crowd stood with their hands clasped behind their backs, their eyes to the sky, an ear cocked. Dapper Man? was gone. That's quite neat, isn't it? A good compromise between resolving dramatic tension and leaving gaps for you to fill in with your imagination. I mean, that's what short stories are meant to do, right? Give you just enough sense of character to feel you might know what the protagonists do next, and just enough plot to feel you can extrapolate what happens next. Still feeling a bit short-changed? Need another strand or two tied up? Okay. Callum and Robert slowly catch their breath. The plumes of vapor coming from their mouths slowly revert to puffs. A bus arrives, the crowd breaks up, a new audience forms. 
The streets around the Foreign Languages University bustle and team as usual. Beijing on December the 25th, 1984 is, after all, just a day like any other. In the few minutes between delivering his whimsical Mr. Darcy Zinger and Callum and Robert's breathless return to the bus stop, Dapperman could have boarded a dozen different buses, disappeared down two dozen different alleys. Eventually, with a glance and a shake of the head, Callum and Robert accept. Dapperman has disappeared. Suddenly, the turkey doesn't seem so important. In that moment, the efforts of their dozens of foreign friends a few hundred meters away, busy reproducing their facsimile of home in their little insulated bubble, seem irrelevant, trifling, unimportant. A foreign fantasy, the kind of thing outside country people indulge in because they can afford to, oblivious to the bruised, battered reality of the country they claim to be interested in. So much for Callum and Robert's mission to save Christmas. Standing at the bus stop, a fresh audience awaits their next performance. Callum and Robert realize their appetite for turkey disappeared along with Dapper Man. Better? Still unsatisfactory? Still feel a bit cheated, shortchanged? betrayed? I've done my bit. It's really up to you now. Which kind of story do you want? Do you prefer messy truth or neat lies? If you enjoyed Betrayed, A Tale of Christmas Spiritual Pollution, why not try Series 3 of The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories? It's called the Quiet Revolutionary, the heroic role played in a plot to assassinate the king by someone you've all heard of. The series was written, narrated and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Samuel Wynne. The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories is a see-through news production. See-through news is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. For more, visit seethroughnews.org. Thank you for listening.